right, hey there, chicken nuggets, and welcome to all you adults in the room who have no idea why I said that. Uh, but kids, you know if you know, right? Hey, uh, I don't know uh, what you're planning to do tomorrow. I'm a little nervous. I got some outdoor plans, and I need the weather to change. So you guys join me in prayer for that. Tomorrow, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm gonna celebrate freedom by floating like a redneck down the Cannon River. And if you don't know what's involved in a redneck river flow, let me tell you, it begins with a straw hat. Protect yourself from the sun. You stuff a cooler into an inner tube, very important. You need a waterproof speaker to play country music, particularly Chris Stapleton. And then uh, when you're floating down, you just snack on uh, cold fried chicken. God bless the USA. Now, I don't know what you're gonna do tomorrow, but I hope that you have big fun and I hope you get to hang out with really good friends. But today, this is what I want us to do for the few minutes that we have. I wanna talk about two really, really good things. I wanna talk about the relationship between these two good things. And before I acknowledge and just kind of say what these two good things are, let me just say that they would be good things even if we lived at another place on the planet and we lived at another time in history. And these two good things are love for God and love for country. Love for God, love for country. And for some of us, those two things go together like vanilla ice cream and apple pie. For some people, those two things don't go together quite so cozy. And so whatever your perspective is, however you might think of yourself or label yourself, today I'm inviting you, would you think with me about these two things, love for God and love for country. If there's anyone in here or watching online and you are relatively new to reading the Bible, let me give you a heads up on some of the things you're gonna find. Over and over and over again, you're gonna read verses that command you to be grateful. You'll read things like this, that it's God's will for us to be thankful. And I just don't think it matters to God where we live, in history or where we live on the planet, that God wants his people to have love and gratitude for where they live and the people with whom they live. And so you think about our particular country. What does gratitude look like? What are the rights and the liberties and the freedoms that you cherish? And if you were going to pray a prayer of gratitude, what would that prayer sound like? It is a good thing to slow down and to pray that kind of prayer. And if you do, I have a prediction. If you take seriously the teaching of Jesus and the call to be loving and the call to gratitude, you will pray, God, would you bless the USA, but you're gonna find that you adopt a new perspective and it's more like this, you bless the USA. Why don't we bless the USA? Well, why? Because Jesus made it really, really clear that love for God cannot be disentangled from love for people and if we follow him, if we take him seriously, if we put the weight of our life on what he taught, we're gonna find ourselves with this growing desire to love and to bless others. But this is where it gets murky when we're talking about these two things because it's really easy for love for God and love for country to become blended together into one thing. Have you ever experienced that? I grew up in a culture that blended those two good things into one thing. This is a little bit about my story. I grew up steeped in Christian nationalism. I grew up being taught, not just, not just by my family, not just by people in my life, but in my church. This is a Christian nation. God has a unique relationship with the United States and a unique purpose for the United States. And serving God and serving patriotic interests are often one and the same thing. And eventually there were some questions that I had to wrestle with I just couldn't ignore. And they're pressing questions. These are the questions I'm talking about. 
Is the USA a Christian nation? Was the USA ever a Christian nation? Are we supposed to take the USA back for Jesus? And does God have a unique relationship with our nation? And I grew up being told the answers to these questions are yes, 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 and yes. The problem for me is that I began to study history and the Bible. And the more that I studied both, history and the Bible, the more that that foundation began to crack. And I discovered that there are problems for a Christian nation way of thinking. And these are the problems that I discovered. Christian is a noun, not an adjective. And the first century uh, in the city of Antioch is where Jesus' followers were first called Christians, is very likely intended by some to be an insult. Admit Jesus' follower, admit little Christ, and it was a person who was a follower of Jesus. And it is unfortunate and unhelpful that the word has devolved into an adjective. And we say things like Christian music, or that's a Christian company, and I get the intent behind that. The problem is, when we take this term and we turn it into an adjective, it loses its meaning. Here's another problem. There has always been a percentage of U.S. residents who follow Jesus, but it's never been 100%. Like, what percentage do we have to be at for us to be a Christian nation, and who gets to set that percentage? Our nation protects religious expression. It doesn't promote any particular religion. Here's another problem with Christian nation thinking. It confuses the monumental influence, the monumental influence of Christianity on our founding with allegiance to Christ. The Bible, Judeo-Christian values, Significant aspects of the Christian faith played a significant role in shaping the thinking and the, and, the, and the behavior of people who were involved in our founding. And some of the people involved in our founding were devoted followers of Jesus. Some of the people were not at all followers of Jesus. And in the same way that somebody can build their life on Christian principles, and that doesn't mean that they're a follower of Jesus, same thing could be true of a, of a nation. Our nation's founding, influenced by the Christian faith, but wasn't founded on an allegiance to Jesus Christ. And I don't share these things because I'm concerned about you or I'm concerned about us. I wanna let you know a little bit about my story. I grew up very confused about this. And there are people who are confused about this. And maybe you feel confusion or maybe you can relate to just feeling a sense of, of tension. And so it's so important for the sake of clarity and for our good and the good of people um, who are watching us and listening to us that we have this conversation with ourselves out loud. It's one of the reasons as a church, we're never going to blend symbolism for love of God with symbolism for love of country. Today you drove in and you saw the American flags. That's great. But what we're not going to do is blend symbols of love of God, love for country. You want to see what I'm talking about? Can I give you an example? We're not going to do this. And I'm not going to say that this is morally wrong. I will say I don't think this is wise. And I would encourage you not to blend those two types of symbols together. And you might ask, well, why? Well, number one, I don't think Jesus has to share the spotlight with anybody or anything. I think he deserves to get the spotlight all by himself. The second reason. The intent behind this is probably to say, I love Jesus and I love my country. It's a great intent. The impact is those things get blended and blurred into one thing. There's another problem with Christian nation thinking. Taking a nation back is almost always identical to achieving political power. And the next thing I want to give you 
The next reason that we're gonna put on the screen is incredibly important for those of us who love and cherish God's word. Problem with Christian nation thinking, God's purposes for and promises to Israel are mistakenly and equally applied to the United States of America. And to take Old Testament passages that are promises to and they're all about the nation of Israel and to make them about our country is twisting and abusing God's beautiful word. And we shouldn't do that. And so the question is, how do we hold on to love for God and love for country as two really good things and not blend them into one thing? Well, today we're going to read an Old Testament passage that I believe can serve as a roadmap for us into that. It's a very, it contains one of the most popular Bible verses uh, that there is. And we're going to read Jeremiah chapter 29. And as I read through this, pay attention to what stands out to you. I'm going to make some observations. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to those priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. If you were here last week or if you tuned in last week, you remember Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of the Babylonian Empire. Three times in his reign, he attacked Jerusalem and he took some people against their will. They weren't necessarily slaves, but they weren't free and he took them from Jerusalem back to Babylon to integrate them and to assimilate them in his society. Just to make sure we're all clear, who did that? What's his name? Okay, you got it. Nebuchadnezzar is responsible. He's the one who did it. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. Here we get a little snapshot into part of his strategy. He took government leaders, he took artists, he took cultural leaders back to Babylon and assimilated them into their culture. This is a long-standing strategy that's still used today. Take the political leaders, take the cultural leaders, and if you can assimilate them, it's easier to control people. It's probably a sermon for a different time. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Now, we're ready to read what the letter says. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile. Who did we just say carried them into exile? Nebuchadnezzar. Now who's, who's claiming responsibility? How do we, is that a contradiction? Was Jeremiah kind of in a hurry? Is he a sloppy letter writer? How do we reconcile? Nebuchadnezzar did it, no God did it. We're gonna come back to that in just a second. So this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. It just makes sense. And we read this. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. You know why they keep lying to you? Because you ask them to lie to you. Knock it off. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. 
I have not sent them, declares the Lord. There have always been false prophets and false preachers. And probably the easiest or the quickest way to recognize them is false prophets, false preachers, they talk about the right thing and the wrong order. Let me say it again. They talk about the right things and the wrong order. What does that mean? They take good things, they elevate them to ultimate things, and then they take God and his purpose, who's ultimate, and use God to serve those good things. That's a problem. God does not exist to serve our agendas. God does not exist just to provide good things that we want. So let me ask us a question. It's an important question. Does a fish know that it's wet? The implication of the question is this. You can be so immersed in something that you lose your awareness of it. And this idea that God is there for us to call on him to serve the good things we want, it's just so common in our culture. And unfortunately, it is so common in churches that we might be losing our awareness of it. And these false prophets were saying, you are going to get your nation back. You're gonna get your nation back soon. Small problem, not true. Would it be a good thing to be able to get their nation back? Is that a good thing? Yes. Was it the ultimate thing? No. And it certainly wasn't God's plan. So we gotta ask ourselves, well, why were they in exile? And to understand why they were in exile, we have to go back to why did God set Israel up as a nation in the first place? God set Israel up as a nation to be his people, to have a special relationship with that country, for them to serve a special purpose. And they were to go out to the nations and to attract the nations to them and to the goodness of God and to faith and trust in God. And God said, if you fulfill your purpose, I will bless you. Two reasons for blessings. One, just for your benefit. Two, other people will see that and that will attract them to the goodness of God. And if you don't live up to your purpose, if you violate your purpose, God said, I'm gonna curse you or I'm gonna punish you. Two purposes for that. One, it served as an indicator to all other nations, do not ignore God, do not disrespect him. And number two, those punishments serve to keep Israel aligned with their purpose. And when God put the people of Israel into exile, it was his, his way of basically saying to them, your purpose was to go out to the nations and attract the nations, but you won't do that, so I'm gonna send the nations to you and they're gonna drag you back to them. And so Nebuchadnezzar came and he attacked. He attacked them after a long season of their disobedience, grievously disobeying God. So God did not protect them. Nebuchadnezzar did it, but behind the scenes, sovereignly and graciously, God orchestrated it. And we see that God used them as exiles to bring about goodness and flourishing and faith in Babylon. And them being exiled, it was simultaneously a punishment and a way to keep them connected to their good purpose. And this is why the command to not be deceived is so urgent. This is why it's so important for us to see how vulnerable we are to being deceived. All the false prophets who said you're gonna get their nation back, they were preaching against God's ultimate purpose. And they were elevating good things at the expense of the ultimate thing. And because we're friends, I think I can say this. We are suckers for the good 
at the expense of the ultimate. And I can't help but wonder if it's happening now. As I, I listen to people and they, and they preach and they proclaim this message, we gotta take this nation back. And it sounds eerily similar to the false prophets who said you're gonna get your nation back. And I think that there's good intent in that message, but I can't help but wonder if those good intentions are accidentally in opposition to God's ultimate purposes. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. God said, the good thing you want, it's gonna happen. Bad news is, it's 70 years from now, you're all gonna be dead, you won't be a part of it. I'm gonna do this good thing, you're just not gonna get to see it. But that's okay, because my purpose for you, my ultimate purpose for you is bigger than that. And that had to be hard for them to hear. An incredibly difficult pill for them to swallow. So God responded This is the next thing he said, and this is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And this is one of those verses that people quote, hey, there's really great things coming. The original context of this verse is, the good thing you want, not gonna happen. I'm not gonna do it. And what I have for you is something you absolutely don't want. But it is better. Would you trust me? And I think the challenge for us is when God doesn't want to be the one who rubber stamps our agenda, will we trust him enough to follow him in his ultimate purpose? Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This passage contains one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, Jeremiah 29, 11. That's the one that says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I'm sure somebody in here has a grandma who has that on needlepoint on a pillow on their couch. Some of us might have it on a coffee mug, and that's a great thing. We're going to we're gonna do a little interactive thing. You guys wanna do something interactive? I want you to turn to your neighbor, connect with somebody you came with, me as a stranger, right? I'm gonna give you 10 to 15 seconds. I want you to answer this question. Is that the promise of that verse? Is that for you and me? Is that valid for us? Go. All right. I'm hearing some rumbling. You know what we're doing right now? We're doing hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is the academic discipline of interpretation. And when I teach classes on hermeneutics, I love to bring up this passage and ask the question I just asked you, is this, for, is this promise for us? And when I teach this class to pastors, I do to them what I'm not, I do them dirty. I'm not gonna do this to you. I make them declare their answer before we go through it. Anyway, they have to answer out loud. And when They say, well, yes, this is for us. I like to ask them, can you tell me about the houses you built in Babylon and the garden you planted? And they look at me like I'm a dummy, and I just say, okay, just tell me this. What is it that tells you you can ignore the commands, but you get to keep the promise? And then that's when they want to change their answer, because it feels a bit self-serving, to ignore the commands and hold on to the promise. If you're a note-taker, I want you to write this down. Jeremiah 29 is to exiled Hebrews in Babylon, not Christians in the USA. 
It's exiled Hebrews in Babylon, not Christians in the USA. Now, before anybody goes home and tells grandma, she's got to throw her needlepoint away. <laughs> Don't smash your coffee mug that says Jeremiah 29, 11. Hold on, all right? It's a beautiful verse. And we should cherish it, memorize it, be encouraged by it. We owe it to ourselves to understand it in context so that we can experience the ongoing benefit and implication of it. Jeremiah 29 isn't for us as much as it reveals the God who is for us and what we should be for. And the same way that God was for them, he's for you. But Jeremiah 29 isn't for us as much as it reveals the God who is for us and what we should be for. Fast forward to the New Testament. If you go and read the New Testament book of 1 Peter, he says that we are exiles and we should live as exiles. The status of exile should be a part of the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. National identity is a good thing, but our national identity can't be a part of our ultimate identity. As followers of Jesus, we're to live like exiles. And when we understand and we embrace God's plan and purpose to live like an exile, we are gonna be ready to ask and answer this question, how do we bless the USA? How do we bless our community? How do we bless this country? or whatever country we're in. And I believe Peter was probably thinking about Jeremiah 29 because it is a roadmap to how to live like an exile. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the commands and we're gonna see if we can identify the principles behind the commands and apply them to ourselves. Jeremiah 29, five and six, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens, remember, we're gonna talk about gardens in just a second. Eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. How do we bless our community? How do we bless our country? Number one, invest in your neighborhood. Build houses and settle down. And I'm not gonna give a lot of commentary on this. Back in April and May, we did an entire series called Neighboring. You can go back and, and refresh yourself with that message series. You can watch that online. But I will say this, God's playbook for living like an exile calls for us to move towards people in relationship, not away. We move towards people in community, not away from them. And the next thing I wanna say, I don't have enough time to talk about it. It probably deserves its own sermon or sermon series. God wants his people to fully integrate, not assimilate. Fully integrate, not assimilate. Integrate is about being with people and being for people. Assimilate is about being like them. We're not gonna take on worldly values or worldly worldview. We're going to fully integrate. We're not gonna assimilate and we're gonna bring the gospel of Jesus and the goodness of Jesus with us. Next, invest in your economy. And let's don't reduce this to making money and spending money. He said, plant gardens and eat what they produce. When you read the Bible, what's the, what's the environment that people are in very first? Where do you find people? What are they in? A garden. Jump to the very last chapter in the Bible. Where are we ending up? It's a garden. I know that was a tough one. It was a tough one. Man, I feel like I got some relevancy now. I gotta keep, there's more teaching that needs to be done. All right, we start in a garden, we end in a garden. 
Gardens play a prominent role cover to cover in God's word. Gardens represent a place where the divine dwells. Gardens represent a place of abundance. A garden is a place where people are to live in peace. And our original responsibility and our responsibility in heaven, believe it or not, will be to cultivate all the blessings of that peace. And so when he says, listen, plant gardens and eat their fruit, yes, that relates to invest well in an agricultural-based economy, but it cannot simply be reduced to that. Engage in, participate in, invest in in a way that you contribute to abundance. Invest in, contribute to, participate in, in such a way that you bring heaven to earth. Did you know that living like an exile means in wherever you work, the job that you have, wherever you volunteer, that you get to play a role of bringing heaven to earth. Third thing, invest in your family. Invest in your neighborhood. Invest in your economy. Invest in your family. And those three steps right there will be significant steps into living like an, living like an exile and blessing the community and the country in which we live. It's the next one, it's the real kicker, and might feel like a kick in the gut. Jeremiah 29, seven says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This was originally written in the Hebrew language, and in Hebrew it doesn't say peace and prosperity, it's just one word, and in Hebrew that word is shalom. The challenge of translating shalom into English, it's so rich and nuanced and complex and beautiful of a word, it doesn't easily translate into one English word. And it really means a kind of flourishing in every way imaginable. And as we look at this, we have to acknowledge there's a level of practicality to this. There's a level of pragmatism to this. If, hey, listen, if the people you live around, if they flourish, you're gonna flourish too. But it's not simply that. Because the command is, pray for it and seek it. Pray to God for it. Would you ask God that he brings shalom, that he brings flourishing, that he brings prosperity to the people who oppressed you and who only want to take from you. Man, that had to be hard to hear. Would you plead with God that he blesses and prospers generously the people who have put you in this position? Radically and prayerfully invest in the flourishing of all others. A couple of months ago, I had the privilege to sit in the same room and listen to a pastor who I greatly admire. His name is Crawford Loritz. And he was talking about how to live like a follower of Jesus and how to lead in challenging times, times that are challenging for our country, times that are challenging for churches. This is one of the things he said. Unity is based on sacrifice. And I hung on every word that he said, but these are words that I knew I had to write down because I didn't want to forget. And isn't it true? that when we serve and sacrifice for each other, don't we feel closer? Aren't we more united? Isn't it true that when we serve and sacrifice for our community, even the people who don't think like us, even the people who live differently than us, even people who would consider themselves opposed to us when we serve and we sacrifice for them, aren't we laying a foundation for unity? I don't know how. I don't know how to pursue shalom without this. I wanna share with you something that I'm currently grieving. 
Um, and if I were to like slow down and get quiet and get prayerful about it, I would probably get emotional. The thing that I'm currently grieving is the perspective that church, that religion, that preaching the gospel, the perspective that preaching the gospel is a tool for people in power to keep power and to get more of it. And there's a perspective on God's word that I think is important for people to hear. I'm sure you already know it, but I want people to hear this. Most of the Bible is written by people without power to people without power to live in such a way that they point people to the one who is the power over all things. And if you go to the New Testament, you gotta change most to all. All of the New Testament is written by people without power to an audience, the majority of whom had no power, to live their lives in such a way that they inspired people to look up and to turn to the one who's the power over all things. Recently, I listened to one of my favorite pastors, Pastor Tim Keller, preach a message on Jeremiah 29, and he said something that stung, but it's good. He said, plenty of Christians today in America walk around remembering when they were in power, feeling like victims, and just being very angry at the whole of society. And God says, no, no, you mustn't do that. I continue to hear this message, maybe you hear it too, but the streams that I'm tuned into, I hear this. We've gotta take this nation back. We've gotta take this nation back for Jesus. And when we hear that, I think we should respond primarily with a question. I don't think our first response should be to cheer it. I don't think our first response should be to condemn it. I think we should respond with a question. The question is, tell me what you mean by that. What does that mean to you? And in just a few minutes, we're gonna sing a song, and there's a line in this song that says, take this nation back. The funny thing is, the song was written by people who've never lived in our country. They're not from our country. And for them, when they say, take this nation back, it's 0% patriotic, it's 0% political. It's just their way of trying to capture the sentiment, God, would you use us to be the kind of people that influence others to turn and look to Jesus? Sometimes people use this expression, we've got to take this nation back, as a way to say we've got to achieve power so we can legislate our way into being a God-honoring country. It's the exact same thing the Pharisees tried. How'd that go? And so when we hear that, we've got to take this nation back, I think we should just slow down and ask, what do you mean? Do you mean we want to be people of influence? Or do you mean we want to be people who grab for power? This has long, long been a church full of people who have very different political viewpoints and very different social movement viewpoints. And sometimes those viewpoints aren't just different. Sometimes they contradict. And believe it or not, I think that is a beautiful thing about our church. And I'm growing to be a person, this is just how I think today, I'm growing to be less and less concerned about what people's particular positions are. And I'm growing more and more fascinated and intrigued by the disposition that we adopt. And I just think that following Jesus and living like an exile and living to be a blessing means adopting this disposition. Be for whoever God is for, and the ways that God is for them. Jeremiah 29.11 is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's not the most famous. Probably the most famous is John 3.16. I'm curious, 
Who all is on the list of people that God is for? Who's not on that list? Now you, you know John 3.16, right? Because God loved a lot of people in the world. He gave his one and only son. Is that what it says? Because God loved the whole world. He gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever turns to Jesus and trusts in faith. Whoever gives their allegiance to Jesus receives life that never ends and shalom that never ends. Friday, I had an opportunity to go to a brand new place. Um, I was hanging around with people that I did not know, sat down to have lunch, sitting across the table from a stranger, and we began talking, and she asked me, what brought you to Rochester? And I said, have you ever heard of Autumn Ridge Church? And she said, is that the church that's always out doing stuff for the community? And I thought, yes, that's awesome. <laughs> Kept my composure, acted cool, you know, trying to act super humble. But I thought that was awesome. How awesome is that? How encouraged are you that someone hears the name of this church, the first thing they think of, oh, that's the church that's out there doing things for the community. What would happen? What would happen if we grow in our resolve to be a people who love God and who love our country? We hold on to those simultaneously, but we don't blend them together. What would happen if we are people who grow in our resolve to be compelled by the love of Jesus to love our community radically and prayerfully. What would happen if we resolved to be people, to be united by this prayer? God, would you use us to bless all the people that you are for and the ways that you are for them?